The Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 15, and it can be found on page 990 in the Church Bible. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. <clears throat> Then there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Following on uh, from verse 44. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. <clears throat> One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, 
calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. If you asked me, I'd say I was a leader, not a follower. A leader of men and women, a leader in faith, a leader who knows how to get people right with God. I know just what to do. Don't get me wrong, I'm a humble man, truly. But I've just been bestowed with this gift of leadership by, well, who can say? But in the matter of church law and forgiveness of sin, I have authority. Authority. Bit of a buzzword around here lately with this, this chap from Nazareth coming in and stirring us all up. He's a carpenter by trade, you know. Yet so capable in theological debate. You should have seen him last week at one of our meetings. He was throwing our tricky questions right back in our faces, challenging our principles, our views of how to please God, and some might say, putting us in our place. You know, it didn't seem to matter that it was just him against all of us. He still had this, this honesty, this purity, this truth to, to his message. And they were things that we did not want to hear. made more than a few gentlemen uncomfortable, I can assure you. I didn't want to admit it to myself at first, but the man resonated with, with an absolute authority. Despite my theological pedigree, I found myself questioning my standards. I found myself feeling uneasy within my heart. The uneasiest feeling of all was realising that I was starting to respect him. Nothing good can come of it, I assure you. We're all starting to get a little bit sick of him. Well, no wonder the leaders were sick of Jesus. No wonder they wanted to trap him. Coming to Jerusalem, claiming to be king, he cleared the temple. He exposed and condemned their rejection of God and his messengers. 
It's either change their mind or trap him and kill him. So they team up with the Herodians, who are really just traitors like the tax collectors. They're collaborating with the Romans, just further up the pecking order. And they come to trap him with their question. Just listen to their flattery, verse 16. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Everything they are not. And so they ask the question, tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? It's such a brilliant trap, you see, because whichever way he jumps, he's going to lose people and get himself into hot water. No one really likes taxes. But a tax on people who are dominated by a foreign power, by Caesar, a poll tax just for being alive, you'd hate that. They so hated this tax that when it first got introduced 30 years before, there was a revolt in the city about the tax. And not just that it's a tax, but the coin itself you had to use to pay that tax. Whose image was on it? Caesar's. The inscription, a son of the gods. A Jew would hate nothing more than to touch such a coin. But if he says, no, you should not pay this tax, he will lose the collaborators. He will antagonise the Herodians, the tax collectors, and he'll get himself arrested. And so Jesus' answer is so brilliant, don't you think? Knowing their evil intent, verse 18, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him one. And he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Jesus sees through them. He knows they're trying to trap him. And he asks for a coin. What do you know? These religious leaders, they've got one handy, an image of a God in their pocket. Whose image is it? Whose inscription? It's Caesar's. So he says, well, it's Caesar's. Give back. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. He defeated you. He is your ruler. He's the one who pays for the roads. The currency is his. Give back to him what is his. There are lots of implications here, aren't there? You should pay your taxes, even if you don't like the government, even if the government is corrupt. For if the ruler of the government claims to be a god and you should still pay taxes, well, clearly, as far as I can tell, our government's not that bad. We should pay our taxes. But it's more than that, isn't it? To Caesar belongs more than just this poll tax. It, he deserves their allegiance and the obedience to his orders and following his laws. We need to give back to rulers what is theirs, and not just political rulers, but your boss at work, a teacher in a classroom, a leader of a family, even if the leader is ungodly and anti-God. God wants us to give back what is theirs. 
But Jesus doesn't just say that, does he? Give back to, to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus is not saying here there's two things in the world. There's the God bit and the worldly bit and make sure you do both. He's not saying there's the Sunday part and give that to God and the rest of the week which you just go and live separately. No. Give back to God what is God's. What is God's? What belongs to him? Put it another way. What is it? that has God's image on it? That was the question, wasn't it? Whose image is it? You are the image of God as a human being. I am the image of God. And so what is God's? He has given me everything. He has given you everything. To give back to God's what is God's is to give him everything about you, which includes giving back to rulers. I wonder, have you done that? Have you given back to God, submitted yourself to him? Are you doing that day by day? These leaders certainly haven't. And Jesus loves them enough to be brutally honest. Do you see? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's the answer for your question. And you give back to God what is God's. And do not try and kill his son. These are important issues to understand tax and what you give back to God. But do you see Jesus? How wise his answer is when they're trying to trap him. How fearless he is. And that he loves them enough to be brutally honest. When they heard this, they were amazed. And we should be too. Well, the tax trap failed. But don't worry, the Sadducees have a resurrection trap. They are the respected intellectuals of the Jewish community, but they only believe the first five books of the Bible. They reject the rest. And they say there is no resurrection. They were sad, you see. They didn't even believe in the immortality of the soul. All you had was this life on this earth. And so they come to Jesus to try and mock this resurrection of the dead idea that all people will be raised and to trap him. And they have found just the thing in the Old Testament to test him with. For the Old Testament said that if a man died without children, his brother was to marry his widow and so have children for him and carry on his name in Israel. And so they come up with a terrific question. A man, one of seven. He marries a woman, but he dies without children. And so the next brother, next one down, marries her. He too dies. And the next one marries her. And he too dies. And on it goes. Until all seven have married her. And then finally, she dies. It's a great question, isn't it? You can imagine how she's feeling by the end. What is it about me that these boys keep dying on me? You can imagine the seventh wedding, can't you? The man is just shaking there, watching his six brothers have gone before him. It's a bizarre question. They are testing him, do you see? For they want to know, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? How on earth would that work? 
Well, hear Jesus' answer. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. About the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see how wise Jesus' answer is? He answers from those first five books of the Bible that they too believe. And when God spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what is your name, says Moses? I am who I am, says God, Yahweh. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are all dead as far as your eyes can see. But if God is I am, and he he says, I am the God of these people, you can bet your bottom dollar they are not dead and gone. Jesus says he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And how good is that? From the moment I was born, my body started falling apart, just like yours. It has a use-by date. And no matter what we do with our bodies, with makeup, surgery, fitness program, healthy eating, or the tablets you take each morning, they will collapse. What hope is there? That we will live on in the memories of those we love? Or that we'll be a spirit in the air one day without a body? No, how good is it to know that there is a resurrection of the dead? But the question remains, which one is going to be her husband? How can she have seven husbands? Which one will be her husband? Jesus says none. She will have seven ex-husbands. Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. For there is no marriage in the resurrection. It's really good for us to see that. I think we've had Valentine's Day this week. Our society idolises romantic relationships and thinks that they will fulfil all our relational needs, that the relationship, the one, is the ultimate thing in life life and yet relationships can be really hard marriage can be really hard and for some people some of you here today you may be thinking what a great relief my marriage will come to an end i won't be struggling with this forever and in the resurrection there'll be no marriage others of us how could there be a good heaven the good place with no marriage I struggle to understand how that can be good. Maybe if your partner, your spouse has died, one of the main things you're looking for, longing for, is to be reunited in marriage. Why is there no marriage in the resurrection? Because one of the purposes of marriage is to raise children, and we will not be raising children in the resurrection. One of the purposes of marriage is to be a sign that points to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his people and when we are in that ultimate marriage between jesus and his people we don't need a sign anymore we're in it we will know each other fully in the resurrection but there is no marriage do you see these two really helpful things to understand the resurrection of the dead and that marriage is for this life 
But even more, do you see Jesus here? Here is a tricky question that he has never been asked before because no one had been asked this sort of question before. They're seeking to trap him with their fine minds, but he is so wise and he is fearless and loves them enough to be brutally honest. Verse 29, you are in error. Ouch. Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Why do they not believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because they do not believe what he says. And because they don't think God is powerful enough to make it happen and to resolve our tricky questions. Some church leaders today are like that. They reject the resurrection of the dead. We ourselves struggle, don't we, to believe it could really be true there is a resurrection of the dead. The key is to know the scriptures and the power of God. And Jesus has the wisdom and the fearless courage to say it. Well, he silenced the Sadducees, and the crowds are astonished. But there's one more trap. The Pharisees come with their law trap. A tricky question, and this time an important question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I think here they're trying to show that Jesus is a simple-minded peasant, like in the video that he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he will pick some minor mm, peripheral thing in the law and not something that's central. People have debated this for centuries. What could be the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus' answer is brilliant, isn't it? Verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We think this is so obvious. Anyone could have come up with this, but Jesus is actually the first person to come up with this. It's so popular now, isn't it? What's really important in life? Uh, love God and love your neighbour. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And sometimes people, if you say, uh, what do you think about Jesus or are you religious? Oh, no, I'm not religious but I live by the golden rule. I love my neighbour. And sometimes Christians have even thought that really the greatest commandment, what is it? To love God and love your neighbour. That's the greatest commandment. In fact, a little, let's push it a little harder. You love God by loving your neighbour. But that's not what Jesus said. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all of who you are. That is the greatest commandment. And if you love your neighbour, if you do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and ignore God and reject God, you have broken the greatest commandment. And it doesn't work simply to keep all the others. It's the most important one. If someone said to me, do you love your wife? It's really important to do that. Well, it's really important to love your wife, but it's really important to love your neighbour. And basically, I love my neighbour. I focus on that bit, and I'm not too fussed about the other one. Would that be right? Of course not. The greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. The second, of course, is like it. It's about love. 
And of course, if you love God, you will love those who are made in his image. Love your neighbour as yourself. You might have heard it said that to love your neighbour as yourself is actually two commandments. Uh, love your neighbour, but first of all, you've got to learn to love yourself. The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. But that's not true. If Jesus had said, like your neighbour as you like yourself, you may well need to learn to like yourself. That can be difficult, can't it? But loving yourself, looking out for number one, doing what's best for you, frankly, I can do that naturally. I don't need to try at all. And I don't think you do either. But learning to love you, I need a lot of help with that. And I need God to tell me to do it. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love God. And a second is like it, to love your neighbour as much as you love yourself and care for yourself. And the whole law hangs and is interpreted by those two commandments. They tested Jesus, didn't they? Is he out of his depth? Is he a simple-minded peasant? No way. He is so wise, he understands the whole law of the Old Testament and sees the centre of it. And he's not just wise, he's fearless and loves them enough to be brutally honest. Imagine you are one of the leaders here and Jesus has been telling you how you're rejecting God by rejecting his messengers and rejecting his son. And you ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he says to love God. And you're planning to trap him and kill him. And he says the second is like it, to love your neighbour. What is he saying to you? These are the two greatest commandments and you are breaking them completely. They tried to trap Jesus with a question about tax, with a question about the resurrection, with a question about the law. And do you see how wise he is, how fearless he is, and that he loves people enough to be brutally honest with them. No wonder they've now got nothing to say. Finally, Jesus gets to ask them a question, and it is a strange question, let's be honest. Verse 41, who do you think, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they reply. What a strange question. Everyone in the first century who was Jewish knew that the Messiah was the son of David. By definition, he is the, the inheritor of the promise to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. Of course, he's the son of David. What is his point? How then can David call the Messiah my Lord in verse 44? How can he be the son of David and the Lord? Of David. What is he saying to the leaders? Your Messiah is too small. You've contained him so that when I come claiming to be the Son of God and to rule over you, you reject me out of hand. But not just that. In his wisdom and his fearless love for them, he tells them what's going to happen to them. Verse 44, God said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What is God going to do for the Messiah? Put his enemies in subjection to him. Who are his enemies? Imagine you are one of the leaders trying to trap him and kill him. You 
says Jesus, if you do not repent, will be judged by me. Do you see how wise and fearless he is? But Jesus is not finished yet. Can I show you? We're looking quickly at chapter 23. He wants to warn because he loves them. He wants to warn his followers, the crowds and the disciples, against these leaders. Don't listen to them. Verses 1 to 13, they're hypocrites and they burden others and exalt themselves. Don't listen to them. Verse 14 and following, seven woes on them. You focus on the outside to be seen by men. You ignore what's on the inside. He says you strain out a gnat, a small thing in the law, and swallow a camel. You are like whitewashed tombs and God has rejected you forever. Do you see how wise Jesus is? He sees through empty religion and he hates it more than you and I do. And he's fearless and loves them enough to be brutally honest and loves his followers enough to warn them. And as you read through it, in case you think that he's just too harsh, too brutally honest and too judgmental, the word woe means, oh dear, if only it was some other way. As he says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. There are so many important issues in this passage, such helpful teaching for us to, to take on board. Give to bad rulers what is their due. Give to God what is God's, every part of you. There is a resurrection of the body. Live and hope on that and marriage is just for this creation as we look forward to the one to come the greatest commandment is to love god and the second is like it to love your neighbor i want you to apply all those things there's a lot to work out there but most of all i want you to see jesus that's what god wants us to see here the finest minds of his day throw everything at him and he is so wise he is so fearless and loves people enough to be brutally honest and compassionate. Remember what the leader says? You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You pay no attention to who they are. That's Jesus. And that is so good, don't you think? For in our world, people think that Jesus is soft, an easy option, that he's not really in tune with the modern world, that he's not a clever man, and no clever man would follow him. He is for the weak-minded, and we live in that world, and I find myself soaking that in and thinking that. And But look at Jesus here, so wise, so clever. They try and trap him, and he's out of it every time and turns the tables back on them. He is a leader worth following. And in the world of leaders, and surrounded by people we know who don't have answers to tough questions, who make up things when they don't really know, who just say what people want to hear, who only say what is politically correct and they won't speak their mind. We are so cynical about leaders. Do you see Jesus? So wise, 
and so fearless that he says what he really thinks, loves people enough to be brutally honest. He is such a good leader to follow. As he says in chapter 23, you have one teacher, and he is the one teacher worth listening to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful teaching that Jesus gives here. Help us to understand it and apply each part of it. Help us to talk about it together. Father, help us most of all to see how good Jesus is here in the face of very clever people trying to trap him. He's wise, fearless, and loves us and is brutally honest. Father, help us to see him and love to be following this teacher. We ask this in his name.